and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends Giselle Donnelly. I also work at AEI and Julia Joja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities. On our podcast, we talk about the challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Jason Blessing, a Gene Kirkpatrick Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, expert on tech policy. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Jason, the reason we asked you to come on the podcast, uh, first and foremost, is this story that's been unfolding thanks to the publication of Walter Isaacson's biography of Elon Musk, uh, which supposedly reveals that Elon Musk, who provided his Starlink system to Ukrainians, including to Ukrainian Defense Forces, was asked by the Ukrainians to to activate Starlink to allow for a drone operation against the Russian fleet stationed in Crimea. And he supposedly denied that request. And as a result of that, the operation was aborted. And Ukrainians are telling a very compelling story about how the failure of this operation essentially enabled Russians to strike deeper inside the Ukrainian territory and kill civilians and continue with their depredations. Could you um, maybe add qualifications to the very sort of simplistic lay narrative that I that I presented, or or, or sort of you know explain like through your you know more astute technical lenses? what exactly happened and what exactly was at stake and who was at fault? Absolutely. And well, thank you all for having me back in the first hand. So essentially what we've had uh, is in, uh, one of the main qualifiers up front is there was a correction put out by the biographer that, uh, you know, initially it was that Musk had agreed to activate Starlink for Crimea, but then took back his word. It's since come out that he never agreed to activate it in the first place, uh, which in and of itself is an interesting discussion. But since since day one of the war, uh, Starlink has provided... You know, on two hands, the the best way for civilians and military to communicate, essentially, uh, and particularly for military operations on the battlefield and for drones, uh, as you've said, Dalbor. Uh, it on the one hand, it's provided a more secure connection, uh, in the sense that it, the just the availability of the networks uh, coming from low Earth orbit satellites. Uh, it's it's provided much more consistency as the Russians have targeted. Uh, our, you know, our general uh, cable connections and infrastructure that we used to think of uh, for digitally enabled communications. Uh, on the second hand, the quality of it, even when traditional digital communication avenues have been present, uh, the quality of Starlink has just been unmatched. The, the rate, not only the rate of which data is transferred, uh, but the fact that some of their technical engineers and uh, crisis management teams on the back end have been able to combat much more quickly uh, Russian intrusion attempts, uh, it's made a huge deal in terms of the quality of communication as well. Uh, what has happened, however, is to to keep it in somewhat lay terms, but add a little bit of the technical as well. Starlink has decided to, in essence, geofence its uh, access to Starlink. And what we mean by geofence is, you know, either in in two ways, it can restrict the radius of connectivity. Uh, according to a GPS location for a specific connection attempt, uh, or it can uh, use you know physical terrain, sovereign boundaries in particular, as uh, a delimitation for its services. 
Uh, unfortunately, what has happened in the Starlink situation uh, is not only has service not been provided to Crimea writ large, uh, you know, still sovereign Ukrainian territory invaded in 2015, but uh, it is also, there has been no service provision in the Donbass region uh, at all, which Russia has invaded and is uh, still sovereign Ukrainian territory. Uh, so what you have is a private firm uh, with an extremely hierarchical decision structure uh, where essentially one person, uh, a CEO, can make the decision to digitally redraw terrestrial boundaries, uh, in essence. And so that's, that's where we are. And as, as such, any time that Ukrainian offensives are being planned, uh, military planning can't take into account that they'll have communications uh, consistently and essentially have to ask permission for Starlink to activate service for recently liberated areas. So this is making the war effort and communication and planning much harder on the ground for the Ukrainian forces. Just a couple of follow-up questions and then we'll turn to Giselle, who I know, or I'm guessing will have a broader question. Um, but uh, what we've seen in social media, so help us kind of connect the dots here, is that a year ago when the Ukrainians used maritime drones uh, to attack um, Crimea or try to attack, Starlink went down. And then a year later, just a few weeks ago, um, they seem to have been able to use um, drones, maritime drones, to attack Sevastopol um, and uh, affect those two um, uh, naval capabilities, the submarine and the and the ship, um, in uh, on the docks um, in Sevastopol in Crimea. But people were talking about how at that time, during that night, again, starting went down. So can you help us understand all of that? So there's, I would say there's at least two explanations for Starlink going down in that situation, or three. One is it's possible that decision makers at the company, you know, decided to take it offline at that point in time uh, for fear of, as has been publicly stated, fear of escalating the conflict. That's one possible avenue. Uh, another possible avenue is that it was a Russian disruption. Just because Starlink has been by far more effective and more timely in combating Russian intrusions and attempted outages uh, doesn't mean it can't work. Uh, the third possible explanation is that service just gave out because it was at, at that point in time uh, what Starlink had uh, decided was its area of coverage, weak coverage and or you know limitations if you get past geofencing isn't exact. Uh, necessarily, you know, to a certain degree, you, you, you can't, it's hard to draw a firm line and say, now I've got service, now I don't. Um, certainly that can't happen, but it could just be the case that uh, the drones being used, maritime drones being used, uh, veered outside of the, the geofencing area. Well, to try to peel the onion back another layer or two, and my understanding of the most recent Ukrainian attack on the Black Sea Fleet was that it was a combination of drones and uh, probably uh, storm shadow missiles supplied by the the Brits. So the one of the really remarkable aspects of the Ukrainian way of war, if we can now call it that, is their innovation in combining uh, cyber and electronic warfare means, just to use that broadly, with you know more traditional kinetic uh, forms of attack. 
uh, in ways that they always seem to be a step or two ahead of Russian uh, defenses. Uh, Jason, is, do you think that's a fair read of the situation, or is that just my uh, pro-Kiev bias uh, uh, coming to the fore? It might be a little of both. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, I, I would say uh, one thing that's been phenomenal is t- to a certain degree, you know, we've seen the public diplomacy that's been taking place digitally. That is certainly novel. Uh, you know, if we want to talk about the use of cyberspace, but not necessarily creating cyber effects, uh, you have to count that in. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, a lot of what we've seen is is traditional military communication using digital means. That hasn't changed. Just the fact that it's taking place across a satellite connection instead of a cabled connection, you know, that's a slightly novel twist as well. But you know, that, that's a logical extension of existing practices. I think what has been the most, the, the biggest advancement in using cyberspace, at least w- within the capacity of the Ukrainians is that cyberspace has been used as an enabler, uh, much more so uh, than a force multiplier. And so what I mean in that sense is the Ukrainians don't necessarily have the capacity to, uh, you know, it takes a lot to coordinate a cyber, an offensive cyber effect to essentially pop the adversary's network, take their lights out, turn off their eyes and ears, uh, and then move in with, uh, you know, armored vehicles. Uh, that's, that's extremely complex. Uh, the U.S. hasn't mastered that, uh, that we know of. And if that's the case, then, you know, uh, a military that is much less technologically capable, it's unlikely. But what has been very interesting has been the usage, and in this case, particularly of Starlink, uh, the usage to increase situational awareness and integrate that into its military planning. Uh, so the fact that they've been able to link drones up, not only for drone attacks, but really to increase... Uh, knowledge of Russian positions, you know, where defensive fortifications are, uh, that ability to process and integrate that information, you know, I think it's it's not a surprise that's, you know, all militaries want to do that. But I think the, the efficacy with which the Ukrainian military has done that uh, and utilized, you know, Starlink in this instance, but low, low Earth orbit satellite network provision to do that combined, I think that's what's novel about this situation. I would particularly like you to, to talk a bit about the use of small sort of disposable drones uh, by the Ukrainians. But, but just before we let the previous conversation go completely, I was thinking a lot about the Ukrainians' ability to get a video clip up really quickly after one of these more spectacular strikes which really suggest that this is the part of a part of the way they think and a part of the way they plan you know if they're going to and of course they don't put up uh, videos of the times that they don't succeed but again they are prepared to exploit the sort of propaganda value of the kinetic strikes that they uh, have that they do have success with and that's you know again the Russians are always have been showing the same video of the disabled leopard now for three months, uh, whereas the Ukrainians have at least new content on a regular basis. And and you got to think that part of the way they think about the conduct of their uh, combat operations is to be able to exploit it for quote unquote informational purposes. Right, and I, this is your. Uh, well, I, I would just add. I mean, this is you know, your modern day version of dropping leaflets uh, and, uh, you know, making populations aware of your successes and how well you're doing for support. 
But, uh, you know, what strikes me as really interesting is, as you said, Giselle, the speed at which this is taking place. It indicates to me that not only is this a concerted effort, but they have someone that is working on public communications within their military planning uh, to really, you know, that's this is this is part of their war plan, essentially. I, and to add to that, I have to say that the the Twitter or X um, um, account of, uh, <laughs> uh, of um, of the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense is one of my favorites. The things that they put out are really well done and full of humor, etc. And and then you see here and there some real movies like five to ten minutes some semi-documentary um, that are really published sometimes 24 hours um, or so after the event. I've seen the most recent one um, with the exploitation platforms uh, in and around Crimea that the Ukrainians are taking and where I cannot help but think there must be like a touch of Zelensky, right, with his um, uh, with his experience and with his um, ability to make that into um, something on video so quite interesting so i'm going to intervene now and i'm going to take us back to the, to the subject at hand so, so so jason i have i have a question for you about starling and its uniqueness or lack thereof so so one could make the argument about starling and elon musk is that you know like these these are his gadgets without elon musk there wouldn't be any starling uh you know he's the master of how the system is used he can either switch it on switch it off allow this actor or that actor to use it or not at his discretion ukrainians are caught in the middle of it i mean that's you know tough luck but but ultimately it's a private enterprise he's he's in charge uh now you know accepting this premise i wonder you know to what extent is the ukrainian reliance on starling accidental and to what extent it just reflects this sort of new way of warfare uh, that could be actually extended, applied, you know, to other militaries. Like if if Poland had been waging this war against Russia, uh, being on the defense, would they be also relying on Starlink, or would they have other systems? If we were with Taiwan in a war with China, would we be also relying on Starlink or not? Uh, or are there other sort of systems in place available to us to 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 have the same? degree of security of communications and same degree of quality of communications or not because if not it's not so much an indictment of musk per se but rather of the fact that we should probably be thinking of building infrastructure of this kind for you know security purposes away from the hands of of, of sort of mercurial uh, billionaires so that's that's a really interesting question, Dalibor. And I think to to take the on the first hand, the I don't think it's accidental that the Ukrainians are relying on Starlink. Um, if you look at the way that uh, you know, it, at least even initially as the war unfolded, the the digital dynamics at play. I mean, you had all the big actors in there: uh, Microsoft, Amazon, what have you. Uh, you know, the fact that they're in the play as well. And not only that, but, you know, we helped uh, train up the Ukrainian operators and digital infrastructure for years prior to the big invasion. Uh, so it's it's not necessarily for a lack of other options. I think the, the difference in, 
Ukraine versus, I mean, even Poland to some degree, but if you think about other countries, it's just the the breadth and the quality of those existing options, right? You know, U.S.-based encryption is going to be a lot stronger for its military communications than Ukrainians. That's just a fact of having more technological prowess. So, you know, in the, in the theoretical, I, I think if, you know, hypothetically Poland were in this same situation and you had, you know, let's say the Russians were targeting communication infrastructure the way that they have in Ukraine, you know, on one hand, I think we'd see less of a, a broad distributed effect since Poland has, you know, has been part of NATO exercises, NATO training, you know, very close partnership with the U.S., etc. cetera. Uh, they've just got a little bit more robust of a defensive base. But if communications were to go out, I could see a, a situation where they move to Starlink. Now, the problem is it's not just Starlink. It's the, the move is away from our, you know, essentially undersea cable-based digital infrastructure to satellite-based infrastructure. And right now it's, you know, we can, I'm not defending him by any means, but we can beat Musk up all day long. But at the end of the day, it's a market issue uh, because Starlink has the ability of being the prime mover and the first pass to post to really develop at scale and at low cost, low earth orbit satellite for, you know, internet communication. Uh, the problem is that there aren't any other providers. Uh, and to go, or, you know, if there are, they're small enough not to make a dent into a large country that needs broad connectivity uh, and reliable connectivity uh, to, to have breakthrough counteroffensives. Uh, so the issue is more that there aren't reliable options on the market for this specific service. Uh, and so going forward, I, I think you're 100% right. Not only does, you know, the U.S. government has a place where it can develop this capability uh, within, a, you know, the public sector or public sector subsidiaries, but it's also up needs to incentivize the development of more private sector actors in this. You know, there's a whole nother discussion, which is sort of outside my expertise about, uh, you know, whether we could start to get satellite crowding, but we don't have that issue right now in low earth orbit actually some of the things i've read suggest that we're getting close to that i mean first of all the starlink constellation is many thousands of satellites and they put a couple up you know like every week but you know or something equivalent to that so it would to replicate that or to compete at that scale would be an extraordinary investment for everybody and these orbits are not, you know, they, it's possible to run out of space. It would, might be a good idea to, to sort of remind people some basic facts about the Starlink constellation. Uh, you know, we focus so much on Mr. X himself. I just think it's worth putting what Starlink is in a little bit greater detail and a little context. You know, to, to sort of get the basics out there, how it works is a signal is brought down from a satellite and data is relayed back to the satellite and creates sort of a daisy chain between the satellites or, you know, it not necessarily in a linear manner, uh, but data is distributed across these satellites that are launched into low Earth orbit in space. Uh, and just the way that they have managed to do it is they have launched these pretty quickly. So there's a lot up there, which makes the distribution of data a whole lot quicker. Can you also just give us a primer on satellites and their or communication satellites and their orbits? Like what's what what defines low Earth orbit or geostationary orbits or all the kinds of orbits that satellites are? 
So full disclaimer, I am not a space guy, but I will say low Earth orbit. It's it's a it's in a closer proximity to terrestrial Earth than some of the the further out satellites, and that means they serve a little bit different of a function in what they intend to do uh, and how quickly they can work to some degree, uh, and the types of data that they can capture. So if you just think about, you know, you've got the ground as a spherical Earth, uh, and then, you know, sort of an outer ring about that. If you just think about concentric rings, uh, these different layers of atmosphere around the Earth, they're satellites at, diff at varying degrees. Uh, and depending on where they are and what they're doing depends on the data that they can pick up and what function they can serve. So this low Earth orbit stuff is just sort of the closest ring around the ground. Thank you, Jason. We appreciate um, this tour of space. Now, back to planet Earth. <laughs> uh, um, I, I want to before, and I promise then I'll be done with uh, Mr. X, um, but, but I want to ask one more thing um, back to Ukraine and Starlink, and that is... Um, ever well for over a year now we've had conversations um, about to what extent um, exactly what Dalibor was referring to earlier this control that one person and a private uh, entity has over um, warfare um, is not the right um, uh, is not the right combination and so the question basically is what can be done in this case um, we've seen uh, I think it was three senators um, with an initial uh, uh, question to um, the U.S. government and specifically the Pentagon, who's been in a direct relationship with Starlink, including a financial one in the case of Ukraine, um, asking whether um, Musk had uh, an individual direct role in, uh, in saying no um, in the case of Crimea. So. With that combination in mind, can you help us understand what can be done um, from the Pentagon side and maybe what should be done from the U.S. governmental side in order to ease a little bit um, this, uh, this relationship between um, Starlink and, um, and the Ukrainian government to be able to help um, the Ukrainians pursue their um, defense of territory? Sure. So I think the, the, one of the main problems with the Starlink in Ukraine is that it happened very quickly. Uh, and there's a second part to that uh, that'll help hopefully address the, the rest of your question. So when this when provision of Starlink uh, was initially provided to Ukraine, the minister of, I believe it's digital affairs in Ukraine, reached out over Twitter to Elon Musk and essentially says, hey, please give us Starlink. We need to you know, connect with each other and contact, you know, we need to know what's going on in our own country. Three days later, you have Starlink on the ground uh, and at that time free of charge. Uh, and that was that was a game changer, not only for, uh, you know, for Kiev itself to, to communicate within the within the capital, but also out to other cities uh, and out to its troops in the field. Uh, so it happened very quickly. Uh, so that's one aspect. The other aspect is that Starlink had uh, has classified its technology as purely civilian in nature, not meant for wartime. And because of that, it didn't have to go through ITAR restrictions for, you know, for export restrictions for uh, dual-use technologies uh, since it was classified only as a civilian technology. The problem is, as soon as they provided it to Ukraine, it de facto becomes a military technology when the military is using it on the ground. That is something the folks at Starlink just seem to ignore. Uh, now, the problem when you combine those two things is that, yes, it, you know, if you, 
the the correct policy and legal route to an extent is to now at this point Starlink should probably be under uh, and be classified as dual use technology uh, under ex- export and defense export ITAR restrictions whatever. Um, but the, the other problem is the U.S. government, DOD in particular, doesn't move as fast as the Ukrainian needs it, as the Ukrainians need it to. Uh, so we have we have those two those two problems, and because the technology was not subject to, you know, military export regulations, uh, where you know, the, in this case, the U.S. government would have much more say over how and when that's delivered and the conditions under which it's used on the battlefield. Uh, which would have uh, ameliorated the issue. Uh, instead, you've got, again, the, the head of a company who's basically deciding on a whim whether and how and when to provide service or not. So it's got to, in some degree, it's got to be funneled through uh, the U.S. government. But that's, you know, the, that that's a little bit harder to actually materialize. I would just also, not to to, um, be too sympathetic to Elon, however, I mean, this has been kind of a persistent problem for the leading technology companies for quite some time. These companies, if I could just use shorthand terms, do, were created and exist in an American security vacuum, yet they, they play in global markets. I mean, and this is a, a perhaps an indicative case and and all the leading companies, you know, from from Apple to Microsoft to you name it, have been really reluctant. First of all, even to do business with the U.S. government or the Defense Department, and secondly, to try to preserve uh, their ability to operate, particularly in China, but also in pl- other less than fully democratic uh, countries. And again, this is kind of an issue that's never been fully resolved. The Certainly, the U.S. government and the Defense Department are not willing to pony up the money up front to pioneer and maintain control of the technologies involved. So, you know, Jason, is this kind of a leading edge indicator of something that will be a continuing or even growing problem uh, in the future? Absolutely. And in this case, I mean, you're right. And I think the one of the big differences is, you know, Microsoft and Amazon do have contracts with DOD that are, you know, not as lucrative as a lot of their licensing agreements that they have with others, but it's a hefty contract. And that's business they realize they probably don't want to lose, right? Because if they if they get out of the, the game, there is going to be someone else, one of their competitors will step in. So that is, the, the public market is an important market uh, for government public sector. You know, but I think it's unfortunately the problem with Starlink is indicative of two broader issues. One of which, you know, it's not it's not I mean, both of which really aren't a cyber problem in the first place. It just happens that it moves much quicker on the technological side. Uh, one is that there is a vested business interest. You know, firms exist to, to make money uh, to sell products. Uh, and there is a vested business interest in keeping these operated in countries that are, let's say, less than friendly to the United States in a national security context. Uh, so that is something we have to grapple with. Uh, and, you know, if we're not in an active wartime, you can't necessarily nationalize, uh, you know, these companies uh, a la World War One or World War Two. That's just not going to fly. I mean, the other issue is that you you start to get at, and I know we've talked about this in other formats, but it's an issue of public sector demand, right? The the government doesn't, as you say, they don't want to pony up the money 
up front to you know have some proprietary stake in these technologies uh, to maintain these contracts that would incentivize uh, these companies to you know it would be wonderful if we could say private sector here are democratic values that you should use, you know your product should be distributed and used according to have fun uh, unfortunately that's not how it works and so it's it's particularly bad in the case of Starlink because a there's a legitimate to, to some degree monopoly over the satellite uh, communications uh, link up there and on the other hand the government just isn't uh, providing the the spending or the vision for that spending uh, to what they would even want to do with this. So it's you know it's it's the problem's actually worse than you made it out to be. So in in other sectors you have I mean a, a similar setup right like people want to do business in China whether they make toothpaste or are in financial services but there are situations in which governments can step in and say we are going to take Russia off SWIFT we are going to you know impose financial sanctions. So how would that work out in, in, in the tech industry? I mean, could, and maybe this is completely ignorant question on my part, maybe this is already happening. Could Microsoft just say, we'll stop updating, you know, whatever software there is installed on computers inside of Russia from day tomorrow? And could, could the government compel companies to, to do that? I mean, I don't know, like Apple has probably left Russia by now. I don't know what's happening to iPhones that, 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 that Russians have in their pockets. Like, do they, you know, get new OS downloaded, updated. How does this work? So essentially, I mean, in that case, they kind of turn into bricks. Uh, and uh, that, you know, that's you've seen the Kremlin is starting to push uh, its own uh, domestic Internet providers and mobile telephone providers, telecommunications providers, trying to push their citizens away from Western providers into domestic industries. Uh, to your point, I mean, we have seen that happen already. At uh, Within the first couple weeks of uh, the big invasion in February last year, uh, Microsoft invalidated uh, certificates and licenses across Russian government and Russian private services. Uh, so that's, you know, that is a, that's a significant step. You know, they're still to some degree utilizing that, but also you open the door for, you know, you do open the door for outdated services to be exploited by, you know, hackers friendly to non-Russian nations, right? So that's, I mean, in a wartime, theoretically, you could compel companies to do that. Let's say, you know, the U.S. has a formal declaration of war that's passed through legislature. Uh, yeah, that's that's because it's a U.S. company. Uh, it could demand that Microsoft invalidate licenses and software. But you don't need war for that, right? Like, we have financial sanctions true, true. without the state of war. It is. I was just, you know, in a... And I guess in the the uh, you know logical extreme of that, like yes, that's with fully within government power to do that. And so you know it's it's a little harder, I would say though, to compel a company to to do that, not of its own accord, outside of a war, active wartime scenario. The fact that Microsoft did that in the first place hopefully sets a really good precedent for other companies. Uh, and that's what you want to see is that the 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 government doesn't have to intervene. That those that those norms have already been instituted in our private sector. Uh, so whether that you know, if we ever come to a situation with that, where with China, we'll see if that actually holds up. But that's that's the type of steps you want to see is that the private sector would do this proactively. But you can see that, I mean, trying to figure out there is a good reason to try to get inside Elon's mind uh, because he's there is at least a, I think a, a rationale behind his otherwise rather erratic behavior. I mean, Tesla's interests in China are huge and kind of 
on a precipice or, you know, like, like things aren't, you know, he's very vulnerable there. And, uh, you know, uh, he, all, he also relies on U.S. government subsidies for all his businesses. So, you know, the, the fact that there are these globe-spanning companies that produce technology that is militarily significant is kind of, you know, reached a new uh, threshold, I think. You know, the, the I'm sure the advance of, say, electric motor technology is going to be pretty key for military affairs in the future. And we've seen already the communications implications. Uh, again, it, it sort of feels like this is a leading edge indicator of something that might be on the horizon. It really is a problem of we don't have the the, the policies in place. Uh, in our our in another area, it's it's very similar to what we see with intrusion software or surveillance software, uh, and a lot of the restrictions that have come around commercial surveillance software, aka spyware. Right, uh, a lot of our export restrictions. Uh, there are so many loopholes. Uh, particularly after the, I think it was the 2016 round of the Wassenaar arrangement, that you know originally. Oh, you've gone really down the red hole here. You, you have I, to yeah. give it. What's so, Wassenaar, Jason? Uh, so, <laughs> broadly, the Wassenaar arrangement is the post Cold War uh, agreement uh, among a number of states, primarily, as you would imagine, in the North Atlantic. Uh, on export uh, standards for, you know, non-mandatory export standards for military equipment and military technologies. Uh, and so in 2016, for instance, we had in that round, there was a big push for including intrusion software and surveillance software under that. Well, what you had a lot of pushback from both uh, academics who, who use sources and methods and software to actually red team and find vulnerabilities at, in an academic setting, which is a legitimate use. Uh, you have a lot of firms, uh, cyber intelligence firms, who provide legitimate red teamings and penetration testing services that push back. And you have this, you know, it rehashed uh, a decades-old debate between openness of software and the encryption community that doesn't want to share anything. Uh, and so it's the it's the same issue there is what we have with uh, you know services like Starlink, and when they are dual use for military and civilian connectivity, the same problem we had and are still having with this software is how do you classify that? When do you restrict it and when do you not restrict it? Because it's not like a tank or a missile or bullets that you know you know what it is and what it's used for. Uh, it's we just we don't have the amount or degree of specificity. Uh, or really the, the, the strategic vision of how and when and to whom we want to export these technologies and when they become wartime technologies versus purely civilian, because that's a whole other conversation, and you can argue that's not even a good uh, clarification in the first place. Dalibor, I think, I think I've reached the point where anything further I would say would just be stupid. <laughs> I mean, I have, I have, you know, and 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 have yeah. endless treasure trove of stupid questions to throw at Jason. So, so you know, we can still. Or we go can have on, him back. Or we can have him back. So, I mean, my very stupid question was, you know, why don't we use bounties to target the cyber assets inside of Russia to sort of incentivize hackers to go after, you know, bits and pieces of the of the cyber infrastructure, but it's probably too dumb for, for him to even sort of contemplate. No, that's actually, that's a, that's a good, that's a good question. So we, we do have bug bounties 
to where it's essentially, you know, we, we give bounties out to white hat hackers who will, you know, play the good guy and try and find uh, these, you know, these vulnerabilities and these exploits out in the wild and then report it back to CISA or the FBI in some cases if it's, you know, there's a lot of cash involved or, you know, to DOD. So we, we have that in place. The problem is, on one hand, if you incentivize this behavior, you can't necessarily control what they're doing, right? We've seen there's a lot of research out on how uh, authoritarian regimes, and in particular Russia and Iran, use, and to some degree China as well, although they're a little more tightly integrated with the, the, the defense, the military and intelligence system. Uh, they lose a lot of controls when they outsource these types of operations, right? Uh, and really, it's only effective for sort of these low-level, you know, distributed denial of service. I'm going to knock you offline for three hours uh, by overloading your servers with traffic or, you know, same thing with ping floods or you know, just even vandalism of websites, right? Uh, there's really no strategic benefit because you can't coordinate with these actors. They're unreliable. And then the other question is, do we really want to incentivize that in a democratic society, even if it's going after the quote-unquote bad guys? That sets a really dangerous precedent uh, for, you know, for not only <laughs> development of an execution of policy uh, and accountability in democracies, uh, but you're really, even though it is an adversary, there is a discussion to be had about the general protection and regard for privacy and civil liberties when you can't control these actors. I think that's fair. Like, we might not be sticklers for international law, but it also might be worth considering that it's probably good to have certain norms and try to hold actors, you know, accountable to those norms. I will say, even, it's it's not even, you know, we can have the rah-rah-yay democratic liberal democracy norms, uh, but I would say it's even strategic norms because one of the issues you get with, particularly with using cyber mercenaries, but we even see this in, you know, Chinese operations, is the, the leaving the door open for more damage, right? It's the, instead of re reducing collateral damage, as we're, you know, we're used to thinking with kinetic convention operations, it's about reducing collateral opportunity, right? If you let loose a bunch of hackers, you don't know what type of trail they're going to leave for others to come in behind and cause more damage. And this is particularly the case, like I, what comes to my mind is the Chinese ex uh, hack of Microsoft Exchange servers. Uh, this was a big deal. You know, this was to me a bigger deal than SolarWinds uh, because we got pretty lucky in this regard. The Chinese, as soon as they, the Chinese operatives found out that they were caught, they hacked anything and everything, leaving back doors open. And you can only guess. I mean, that's it's reckless. And so you can only guess who could have come in behind them with, you know, uh, their own agenda or, you know, a much less discriminatory agenda. Ransomware criminal groups, for instance. Uh, so it's it's about reducing the, the collateral opportunity for adversaries to come in and come through back doors. And so that, even in that case, like... Yes, we're a democracy, but we don't want to leave that strategic vulnerabilities open. We're reaching some sort of pirates of the Caribbean uh, territory here. I'm, I'm really, d I, w I was, I was going to say Go there is a, a terrible argument out there about cyber letters of marquee uh, that I won't even humor, but I just thought y'all should know it's out there already. Well, uh, as a student of 16th century war making, uh, you know, all my buttons are getting pushed here. I have to say on that note Jason thank you for this education this was this was brilliant uh, from me Dalibor Rohaj and 
And for me, Giselle Donnelly. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on the platform formerly known as Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. And don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us. Thank you and goodbye.